Well, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We uh, began a series a few weeks back as we're going through uh, 1 Thessalonians. And we began a couple of weeks back and finished chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. The series, the title of the series is called Living and Looking. Living and Looking. The first, uh, and again, all this is in the uh, first message. You can go online and, and listen if you so like. But the Living and Looking, the first part of 1 Thessalonians, is five chapters. First part of it, first chapters one through four and a half, somewhere in the middle there, uh, focus on for a broad sense, are living as believers. Paul is commending the Thessalonians. It's talking about our walk with Christ. And then the half of chapter 4 and through the end of the book focuses on the second coming, some of the most important verses of Scripture concerning the second coming are from 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 and 5. So it'll be fun to get to that and talk about that. But before we do that, there's territory we have to walk through as we go through books of of the Bible. Uh, As I said, all of the introduction was in the first message, but as a reminder, this is a church of Thessalonica, which is in today, or even then, was in northern, northeast Greece. It is still a thriving city. It's called Thessaloniki, Today, it is the second largest city in Greece. It was an important uh, port city, a major, major commercial city, very about the size, population, somewhere between Tallahassee and Jacksonville as far as its size, but very influential as far as its location. Paul planted, along with Paul and Silas, and this is in Acts chapter 17, the first nine verses, Paul and Silas and some others planted this church in Thessalonica. They had uh, come off of uh, coming from Philippi. They were on this second missionary journey. They'd come from Philippi. Remember, they were put in jail there. And they were coming into Thessalonica, preached for about a month, and encountered trouble there. But uh, God planted a marvelous church, and Paul and his companions uh, eventually wound up in Athens where we know uh, Paul met with those philosophers, that famous passage there at Mars Hill. But when he got the report, he had moved on to the city of Corinth. He had gotten a report uh, from Timothy. He had sent his companion Timothy, while he was still in Athens, to go check on the church to see how they were doing. Were they growing? Were they prospering? Uh, were they, did they fall apart because of the persecution? And thankfully, Timothy came back with a glowing report And Paul immediately put uh, pen to parchment and wrote what we call the book of 1 Thessalonians as a word of encouragement. The Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church is often referred to as a model church because there's so many uh, positive patterns that we see in the Thessalonian church that we as a church, any church, wants to emulate and pattern ourselves after. Uh, it is not a perfect church. There's admonitions that Paul makes there in uh, chapters uh, 4, uh, encouraging them to strive for brotherly love. It's not perfect. There's no perfect church. But it was certainly a church that, is, that was excelling in the graces and the gospel of Christ. And it was uh, Paul's second letter, so it came very early in his ministry. And there's so many good things here that it is helpful for us as a church that we want to pattern ourselves. Uh, Everybody wants to be a part of a New Testament church, but you would be hard-pressed to find a New Testament church that didn't have some issue with it, right? That's normal, because when you combine a bunch of sinners together, you're going to have problems. So there's, there's, there's always going to be a mixture, right? But the good news is 1 Thessalonians gives us a lot of positive things that as a, a church, as Grace Church, that we want to uh, remind ourselves of and pattern ourselves of. So if you would take your own Bibles or pads or uh, whatever it is that you look up scriptures, we're going to read 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read it out of the English Standard Version, and you follow along as I read. The Word of God reads, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. May God's blessing be on the reading of his word. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for the purity of the word. And we pray that today that your word would be a light, be a lamp to our feet, our path. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is acceptable in your sight. Lord, as as I open this word and Lord, as we together hear your voice speak to us, Lord, and how we as a church body can be a church that honors and glorifies you. Teach us from your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Most of you know what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission, Jesus in Matthew 28 gave this command to his followers. Matthew 28, verse 19 through 20. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, not names, but the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The command to make disciples is not a command just for pastors, missionaries. It is a command that anybody who is a follower of Jesus in some form or another is admonished, commanded, I wanted to soften it, but commanded by Jesus to be a disciple maker. Our three C's, maybe in the, you saw when we put our logo up, we have three C's that kind of we build around uh, uh, kind of a mission vision. Celebrate, that's what we do here on Sundays. Uh, Connect, That's why we have small groups and we have Bible studies and different things, not to just keep you busy. I assume you're busy enough, but it's ways that we can connect one to another. And the third C is commit. We want you and this church body to be committed to the Great Commission. It isn't just a club for us four and no more, the frozen chosen. No, we want to be out advancing the commission, the Great Commission in making disciples, in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every Christian who is born again has been given a spiritual gift. It varies. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians, about the variety of gifts that the Holy Spirit distributes. But each of those gifts are given to the individual, given to the believer in the church for the edification, for the building up of the church body. So in some way or another, those gifts are given to all of us, and we are to use those gifts in the advancement of the kingdom, in the advancement of disciple-making, because 
That is what Jesus said. His last words to his followers is, go and make disciples. Make disciples. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and I assume most of you are, God wants you to use whatever it is, your gifts or gift, uh, everybody has a gift, at least one major gift, uh, to help others to become more like Jesus Christ in some way, to become more like Jesus Christ. When we talk about a disciple, let me just put some definitions on the screen. A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I know in the scriptures we refer to the disciples, which sometimes we refer to the twelve, but in a general sense, those, of, those who are born again are disciples, followers of Jesus. So a disciple in a very basic sense, is a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, of course, no one follows him perfectly, but we are followers. A disciple, uh, to be a, a disciple, the direction and aim of your life, the trajectory of your life over time is to be moving towards a more obedient walk with Jesus Christ, is to be obedient to Jesus Christ and his teachings from the Word of God, the Bible. To disciple others. Not only are we, are we a disciple, but we're called to disciple others is to help them be followers of Jesus Christ, to help them be followers of Christ. Mark Dever, who pastors in Washington, D.C., has a little book on discipling, and I like this concise definition. He says, discipling is deliberately... Let me say that again. Discipling, too many D's. Discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. So that's just the basics that fit and should be something all of us should be a part of. Now, make sure you hear me. Discipleship is not so much a program in the local church that you sign up for. Maybe you and we sometimes will have things we call discipleship, and I've done this, you know, programs of discipleship. I'm not talking about a program. What I'm talking about is a church culture that is oriented to disciple-making. You hear, you hear what I'm saying? Everybody look at me. You hear what I'm saying? Discipleship should be the culture, the normal culture of a healthy church. That if you want to know Jesus, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to grow as a follower of Jesus, then the normative should be the local church, that that should take place. And the people who are the body of the, of the local church, who are at various levels of growth and maturity in some form or another, are involved in seeing that the people are growing spiritually and becoming more Christ-like. And that, again, is not a program, but that fundamentally begins in our homes. Parents, that's your children. It begins with your kids, discipling your children, uh, husbands, wives. Uh, uh, that begins in a very personal level. And then as you as you are growing as a, as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, that should naturally ripple out of your life where others at, again, various levels want to say, help me grow as a Christian. Some of you I know have testimonies where somebody has been instrumental in your Christian walk in your early years, that this person, maybe it was something as informal as meeting over coffee, maybe it was a formal, you went through a, a book or a Bible study, or maybe it was just something a little less defined, you just participated in their life, but there was something in that process that you took a significant growth leap to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They, you, you saw it modeled, you saw it taught and I believe, again, that should be the normative for a local church and people in the local church. Now, again, we're all going to have various ways that we do that. It takes on many forms, but we should all be about the intentional, deliberate doing good to someone 
so that they will be more like Christ. So this morning, the title, as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the title of the message this morning is A Disciple-Making Church. A Disciple-Making Church. Last week, we looked, uh, finished chapter 1, and we did that in two parts, and looked at a converted church. Thessalonians, Thessalonica was a converted church. They were a converted church. They were genuinely followers of Christ. It exhibited in their life. Paul said in verse 3 of chapter 1 that, uh, I know that you were chosen by God. Well, how did he know? And he goes on to explain that it was evidenced in how they lived their life, that they demonstrated genuine biblical conversion. And so this morning in chapter 2, we want to look at this, this thought in, uh, as Paul uh, breaks it down and talk about a disciple-making church. Use some things that Paul reveals about his own ministry as ingredients or insights or principles, rather, of how we should be disciple-makers and how, consequently, a church should be a disciple-making church. Paul referring to his own life, but we see some principles uh, throughout these eight verses. Notice with me, number one, I want to talk about an effective discipler. Number one, an effective discipler has the right message. An effective discipler has the right message. Effective discipleship is built on a godly message. It has truth. And that is the gospel of God. Now keep in mind, the apostle is defending himself as he did in many, many places. He is constantly defending himself against people that are attacking and calling into question his legitimacy as an apostle. And one of the ways they did that was to attack him personally because if they could attack him personally and cause people to doubt his integrity, then we don't want to hear anything he has to say. So he, he is... Uh, he was driven out of Thessalonica by a mob, and as I said, that's spoken of in Acts 17, verses 1 through 9, and that's how he wound up in, um, where he did later in Athens and later in Corinth. But they're trying to discredit him, and one of the ways they're trying to discredit him is not only in his own personal life, but that his message is bogus, that his message is not consistent uh, with, a, with God and, and the Scriptures or whatever. But notice just a few verses. Look at verse 2. He says, But though we had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, that's where he came before he came to Thessalonica, as you know, and he says, as you know, you know several times, we had boldness in our God to declare to you what? The gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only what? The gospel of God, but our own lives. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, verse 9, that we might not be a burden any, to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul, as a church planter, as a disciple maker, the principle is that an effective discipler, not a disciple, we that's true, but a discipler, if you're going to disciple and lead others in spiritual, their spiritual walk in any point, you've got to have the right message, all right? It's not just motivational teaching. You know, pull your you know, shoes up by the bootstraps and get on with life. Or here's some, here's 10 tips on how to live a positive life. Look, I, I'm all for being positive, but what's going to get you through the hardships, what's going to be truth is the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, I'm not talking about gospel music, you know, we put the gospel in everything, but the gospel in its real fundamental sense is, is shorthand for, of course, Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is what? The power of God unto salvation. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the means or what God has done in Christ to redeem his people 
to himself. Shorthand, God's redemptive work of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, that in Christ that we have been justified by faith. You remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is the what? The gift of God, not a result of works, verse 9, so that no one may boast or brag. It's a work as we spent time and the last two weeks, it was something that was God's initiative, something God initiated, and it's the gospel of God that is, that is grounded in the truth of God, that our justification, our, our being made right before God as sinful men and women being made right before God is through the gospel, Paul says, as, as I quoted, in it is the power of God unto salvation, that it is the truth of the gospel, that Paul says he had the right message and a discipler needs to have the right message. Let me give you an example from the life of Christ. Look in your Bibles over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Give you an example of the gospel, the truth of justification, illustrated just briefly in one of the parables of Christ. Luke chapter 18 And look down at verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus is teaching in a parable here. A parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. All right? That's what a parable is. And he tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, you probably are reminded that in the Jewish culture... There's nothing lower in the culture than being a tax collector. Now, I don't, don't, don't get, we're not talking about modern day. Let's be nice. But see, a tax collector, Rome, Rome dominated the scene. Rome is in charge. They franchised out territories where people bidded on territories to collect the taxes for Rome. And the reason that was such a lucrative deal is let's say, let's say Rome needed 20%. But they charged the franchise guy, the guy who got the franchise for Kathleen, they checked the guy that was the middleman, he tacked on another 8%. Well, the guy who's from Kathleen that wants to be the tax collector, right? He wants to make some money, so he's going to tack on maybe another 10 or 20%. So he makes some money in the process. So you might be paying up to 50% or more in taxes because of this fellow Jew who has sided with the enemy and is making money off of you and your family. You see why they weren't popular? They were despised. Because they were traitors. So that couldn't be more of a contrast to use the pinnacle of the culture's righteousness in their eyes, a Pharisee, and to contrast it or contrast it, uh, his righteousness to that of a tax collector. Two extremes, and that's behind what Jesus says here. He also told this parable, verse 9, he told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a what? The Pharisee, notice notice the behavior here. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's bragging on his spiritual resume as he prayed. Now notice the difference here with the tax collector. See, this is opposite of the way the culture would see righteousness. Verse 13. 
But the tax collector, notice the language, standing far off. They're in the temple praying in the story. Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the impulse or the emphasis in the Greek can read, be merciful, be merciful to me, the sinner. As if I'm the only one. Jesus said in verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, made right before God rather than the other. Jesus said, as he concludes, he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see how we see the part of the gospel and that's the mercy of God? It's not our bringing before God our resumes of our church attendance and our works and how we were confirmed in the church and all these things and we're born in America and my granddaddy was a Methodist preacher and all this lineage means nothing. God has no grandchildren, only children. And we come before God asking for mercy, asking for God's mercy. The gospel is the right message and a disciple maker must have the right message. You see, gospel means good news. That's good news. That's good news that what is impossible for you and I to do on our own, God has provided Christ and Christ alone as we sang. And that's the great message that we must prioritize. Notice, secondly, that disciples and disciple makers, we must have the right message. But secondly, we learn from Paul's own life principles here that an effective discipler not only has the right message, but he has the right manner. I don't mean manners. He uses his napkin and he makes sure he uses the butter knife and the salad fork. Okay, I'm not talking about manners. That's helpful too, by the way, but that's not what I'm talking about. Effective discipleship is built on a godly manner that is evident. It's, it's a way that you do ministry evident in love for the people. Look at what Paul writes in verse 7 and 8 of 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. You've heard the quote, the saying, people don't care what you know until they find out how much you care. It's one thing to pontificate word and doctrine, but if people don't sense that you care about them, they probably aren't going to listen to you. Paul, his manner was that he says that he was gentle. Gentle. And I think about that. Think of, when we think of Paul, remember Saul of Tarsus? Remember Saul? He was that zealot, passionate man who had no problem arresting husband, wife, family if he thought they were Christians. I mean, and this was a passionate on fire type of zealot for the law. And he sang, I was gentle like a mother nursing her children. Like, Paul, what's happened to you? Where's the machismo, huh? What's happened, man? Talking about nursing mothers? Come on, that's not very dignified. But he says, that's how gentle and tender I was. Does that mean Paul couldn't be passionate? Does that mean Paul couldn't have a, a temper at times? Read Galatians 2 and, and with Peter and uh, that little encounter. Remember when he told John Mark, told Barnabas, Uncle Barnabas, because John Mark abandoned them on, a, on one of their travels? And the next time John Mark wanted to travel with him, he said, no, he's not going with I mean, you know, the man was not immune from passions, all right? But he says, we were gentle among you. 
We were gentle among you. Paul said to his, when he wrote to, second, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, talking about this principle, he said, and the Lord's servant must, be, must not be quarrelsome. I've known some pastors that are always looking to pick a fight, pick an argument. Don't be quarrelsome. But be kind to people you like. Is that what it says? Be kind to what? Everyone. Do we not have that up there? I may not have put it in there. Paul says be kind to everyone. But he says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 25, correcting your opponents with gentleness. With gentleness. But notice something else Paul says in verse 8 that's on the screen. He says, not only did we share the gospel, but the gospel was incarnational. You ever talk about Jesus, the incarnate Son of God? That means God became what? Flesh. It was fleshed out. The gospel becomes incarnational, not when we just talk the truth, but when we live out the truth. He says, but we not only shared the gospel of God, but also our own, what? Selves, our own lives. In other words, you saw, I mean, when he was there in Thessalonica, he was there roughly a month, give or take, maybe a little longer. They saw how he lived, and he goes on to talk about some of those things. He lived openly. Uh, and again, Paul didn't try to present himself with some image that wasn't real, that wasn't authentic. He shared his own life. And you know, that's risky when you make yourself vulnerable, isn't it? Because sometimes people will use that against you. He didn't try to present an image that was different than the how he really was. One of the things that is so tragic is when we hear another report of some prominent celebrity minister who's living a double life. And that brings damage to the whole church. They're not living out who they really are. Again, not talking about perfect, but they were real. One of the things that early on I resolved in ministry is that through my preaching or even just private conversation, I was never going to put myself up to be beyond my own life and struggles. Now, the pulpit is not the place to be a confessional. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's not appropriate. I'm not talking about that. But to just be real with people, if I'm talking about prayer, I'm going to tell you I struggle with prayer. If I'm talking about something, I'm going to tell you, I remember one time I was telling somebody, uh, another pastor, and they were like, oh no, don't do that. I'm like, why? What? It's like, no, don't, don't, you know, you don't want to make yourself like you're a real person. I just thought, I don't, I, then I can't do this. Because I don't believe you can pull that ruse for very long. You know, it'll be eight years in November that Sherry and I've been here. And by now, you got a pretty good idea of all my little foibles. And if you don't have enough, see my wife. Better yet, just talk to the elders. They will, they will give you a nice list of my foibles. But you know what? We're, Paul says, we shared our own lives with you. We shared our own lives with you. Effective discipleships built on a godly message, a godly manner where we give our lives, but also thirdly, and we'll spend a little more time here, is an effective discipler has the right motive. Not just the right message, the right manner, but an effective discipler. If we're going to be effective in discipling, and again, let me emphasize, this, this applies whether you're with children, small groups, whether you're teaching a women's Bible study, men's Bible study, it, it, it covers across the board. Don't think of disciplers as just some little elite group that has a certificate because they went through a six-week class and they're called a discipler. 
Okay, That is the job all of us should be about doing in some form or fashion. It might just be, again, you one-on-one with somebody having coffee and sharing the Bible once a week and teaching them the basics of, of the Christian walk. That's discipling. You may, we may never know anything about it, and that's okay, because you're doing it unto the Lord. So wh- what do we mean by an effective discipler has the right motive? Why do we do what we do? There's five ways that I want to unpack this for our application. Five qualities Paul mentions in his own life, but I think they're applicable as disciplers. Number one speaks of the priority of a discipler. The priority of a discipler. We please God when we seek His glory and not our own. That's our priority. Why do we do what we do? We do it as unto the Lord. You say, well, okay, that's good, that's nice. Well, that's really important because if you're doing it for any other reason, it'll come to light. Look at verse 4. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but what? To please God. Verse 6, we did not glory, seek glory from people. You see where Paul's focus is? You see where his priority is? Paul wanted to please and glorify God in all that he did. And that was the motivation. That was his priority as a minister, as as a discipler. It doesn't mean when he said we didn't... Uh, seek to please man but to please God. It didn't mean that he was insensitive toward people. It didn't mean that that's a, a license to be rude. Well, I just speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. Oh, that's good. That's good. That, that, that draws people to your, your, what you have to offer. No. Paul, and remember who Paul was. Paul was this passionate, converted Pharisee who was willing again to even hold... Remember in chapter 7 of Acts, that's where we're first introduced to Saul, Paul, and we see at the end of chapter 7 that he's holding the coats to those that were killing and stoning Stephen. He's holding their coats. He wanted to make sure the Gucci and Armani jackets didn't get dirty because that was more important than killing this innocent man. That shows you the mindset of what God had to work with from there. It isn't saying that we have a right to be rude or coarse or whatever. Well, we just speak the truth. No, remember, Paul says we were what? Gentle among you. Like a nursing mother. Behind his actions towards people, it was always to glorify God. Paul wrote in Colossians 1.10, told us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. What does he say? He says, we aim to please God in all respects. Our aim is to please God, not so we look good to others. Listen to me, pay attention, don't worry about the phone. Listen to what I'm saying. We aim to please God in all respects, not so that we look good, but so that God looks good through us. I believe that when you walk with that kind of reality and integrity, honoring the Lord, He will use you to lead others and do good to them spiritually. There's a second principle, pleasing God is our priority, but secondly, the perseverance of a discipler. The perseverance of a discipler. We please God by enduring trials with steadfast joy. Look what he says in verse 2. I have the New Living translation here. I just like the way it, how they worded it. You know how badly we had been treated in Philippi just before we came to you, and how much we suffered there, yet Our God gave us the courage to declare His good news, the gospel, to you boldly in spite of great opposition. They persevered. 
They didn't allow the opposition and the attacks and the threats to deter them from telling the truth. If you're going to be a discipler, if you're going to be someone who is leading somebody spiritually in truth, expect warfare, spiritual warfare. Expect that Satan does not want you influencing someone to grow in their relationship and walk with Christ. That's the very thing he does not want you doing. And he will throw everything he can to attack and thwart your efforts. But see, Paul, rather than complaining to God, this is not what I signed up for, God. Instead of complaining and threatening to quit preaching, what did he say? Say, He didn't say, God, I deserve better treatment. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know where I came from? You're lucky when you got me. No, he didn't say that. But what did Paul do? Paul kept joyfully persevering in spite of opposition. You know, over the years in ministry, I've watched a lot of people who began to serve the Lord in some form or fashion in the church. Or, and when they get criticized or their feelings get hurt, what do they do? They quit. Quit. Now, I heard a pastor say this to pastors, and I thought I always remembered it. He told a group of pastors, and this isn't just for pastors. He said, if you want people to like you, talking about pastors and ministry, if you want people to like you, go sell ice cream. Go sell ice cream. Because whatever you do, if you're leading in the nursery, there will be something that you do, maybe Kim's nodding and smiling, that somebody will not like. But thank God we got somebody's willing to volunteer to wipe, you know what? Noses. Listen, James says, James 1, New Living Translation, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Because you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance, your perseverance has a chance to what? To grow. And here's the thing. Talk about discipling. I think some of the most effective discipling happens that we don't even realize when we're going through trials. And it could be family things, job things. It can be all sorts. And how we are responding, how we're walking through them, people observe how we handle. Are we trusting God? Or are we just ready to throw it all in? That's part of disciple making is the perseverance of the discipler. But notice thirdly, the proclamation of a discipler. Aren't you impressed all these start with a P? I work hard at this. That's just the way my brain works. But what do we, when we proclaim, we're teaching, we're speaking the truth of God's word. Verse 3, so you can see, he says, that we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. You see, what Paul is emphasizing is, and he talks about the gospel, and what he's talking about is what we proclaim, what we speak, what we teach. I believe that's an emphasis in referring to sound doctrine, sound teaching. Look at how Paul emphasized this to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 6. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. How many of you know there's good doctrine and then there's some bad doctrine, right? And he says the good doctrine that you followed. Look at chapter 6, verse 3, 1 Timothy. If anyone teaches a... Do I not have that? Do I have chapter 4, verse 3? Okay. For the time is coming... 
For the time is coming. This is back in the first century. We're in 2021. If this is so true today, I mean back then, how much more is this true today? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. When you teach the truth, when you proclaim the truth, whether it's in a small group, whether it's in a big group, whether it's one-on-one, and you're discipling somebody, and there's something that you're, you're both aware of, there's something in their life, and you shine the light of God's word of truth, and all of a sudden they react because that's not what they want to hear. You stick with the truth because that's, remember, the priority. You're responsible to God. You do it with gentleness. You do it with kindness. You do it with mercy. But you're responsible to God to lead others in the truth. The fourth principle of a discipler is the purity of a disciple. There's two components to this. Chapter 2, verse 3 reads, I'm not sure if I, yeah, the New Living Translation. So you can see, Paul says, talking about there's, there's two components. One is our morality, our morality, the purity of a discipler. There needs to be, our, talking about our morality, you can see that when we're not preaching with any deceit, or impure motives or trickery, deceit. We're not trying to deceive you. We're not, we're not trying to, to, to have some impure motive, it says. The ESV says, error of impurity. In that day, like even today, there were false teachers who were using the pretense of their quote-unquote ministry to take advantage of unsuspecting widows and other women and use them for immoral or sexual purposes. Does that happen today? Yep. Sadly. It seems like it's almost once a week that there's some account or somebody that's not been arrested for something. Even in our own community in the past month. Think of two situations. Paul says, again, your morality, your purity. And one thing that's interesting is this is a freebie. But I've noticed a connection in people or groups who have and teach and and perpetuate deceitful, false and personal morality. It's just an interesting thing. Even here in our own community, a so-called revival that took place, whatever it was years ago, the leader of that circus himself, a so-called prophet, was living a double life of adultery. I just wonder about all these other prophets, why they didn't figure that out. Makes me question... Who's a prophet? Hello? Am I, I mean, I'm just being honest with you. Does that concern anybody besides me? Do we just give people a pass? No. Look at what Peter said. 2 Peter 2. It's, let me just say, it is, it is sad that if, that the common thing now that if a pastor is going to apply or candidate with the church, it is almost the rule of thumb now that they have to do a what? Background check. You better. You better get a background check. Because there's a lot of snakes in the pulpit. Look at what Peter how he warns, 2 Peter 2, 
But false prophets also arose where? Outside? No, among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Verse 14, they have eyes full of what? Adultery. Insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, he calls them. Verse 18 and 19. They brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting. With an appeal to twisted sexual desires, they lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption. Verse 18 says, they brag about themselves. Beware of any person, especially a pastor, minister, speaker, that's the hero of their own stories. Not only is the purity of a discipler, Paul emphasized in our morality, but he also says in our money. Verse 5, never once did we try to win you with flattery, As you well know, and God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. I remember years ago, the first, well, second place, I was on staff at a church in South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. And I was in school and I was part-time. And I remember there was this particular uh, gospel singing group. You wouldn't know them, never heard of them, but they, they would, you know, they had come through the church periodically. In, uh, and I remember the pastor saying that one of the things that irritated him about the, the leader of this family gospel singing group was it wasn't more than a day or so. We had a man in our church who owned... A uh, three or four jewelry stores in the city. Right? Jewelry stores probably do okay. Right? If your merchandise is diamonds, figure. And this individual, like a heat-seeking missile, sought that man out. And before he left, he had new tires on their traveling vehicle. There's people like that. There's people like that in any form or fashion that use people that are flatterers for what they can get out of them. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. But let me give you the last of these, the fifth. And that is the personality of a discipler. And it kind of goes along with this. The personality of a discipler is we please God by avoiding all deception and manipulation. Verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery as a pretext for greed. Verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, even though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Deceit. Deceit was used for the bait. Some of you are Dave Goosen. I know you love fishing. And you use bait. And I'm sure when you fish, you got some nice juicy worms that you put on the hook. That the fish saw that wiggling worm under the water and thought, oh, I'm going to have a delicious meal, only to realize the reality that he was the delicious meal. Right? You see, that's what bait and deceit 
and flattery. You ever been around somebody that was trying to get you to buy something, sign something? And it was like Eddie Haskell. Now, I know some of you don't even know who that is. But some of you will remember Eddie Haskell. And it was just oozing. And it just made you feel like, I'm being conned into something. This is not sincere. This is manipulative language. Paul says, we did not use flattering speech in order to take advantage of you. Do you see? To be a leader of any kind, at any level, whether you're in the nursery or you're an elder, you are a leader in the church. You see, all of these things, this is what I want to make sure you don't miss, all of these things that we've been talking about, these really are just normal Christian virtues. These aren't just some unusual things that only certain elite people should attain to. Should you manipulate people for personal gain? As a, No. Well, I'm not an elder, so I get to, you know, manipulate. No, these are just things that a Christian should excel in. That Paul says, look, when we came, I didn't flash my badge as an apostle and start making demands. I did not use my calling as a means to lord over you and make demands. Remember... The little devotionals. I, we used to, somebody used to bring them here. The daily bread, our daily bread. Those were, I don't know who brought them. They just showed up. Maybe they appeared out of the heavens, manna. But they just showed up. I haven't seen them in a while. So whoever used to do that, uh, get them, put them out there. They're just simple, uh, helpful devotional booklets. Nothing deep, but helpful. But I remember a little story that I clipped. Years ago, many years ago, a wealthy agnostic was contemplating suicide, but he decided that if he could find a minister who lived his faith, then he would listen to him. And being wealthy, he hired a private investigator to watch a particular man by the name of Will Houghton, who was a well-known minister, pastor in Chicago, and was the president of Moody Bible Institute. And when this agnostic, wealthy agnostic man got the report back, it revealed that Houghton's life was above, above reproach, that he was the real deal. The agnostic went to Moody, the Moody Church where Houghton was leading, gave his life to Christ, and later sent his daughter to Moody Bible Institute. You see, people want to know is this real? Is this authentic? Is this just some fad you're into? You know? You were really into the keto diet last year. Now you're really into Christianity this year. And next year you'll really be into buying gold. I mean, you're just always chasing some fanatical fad. And those of you on the keto diet, don't be offended, okay? All right. my point. <laughs> Are you real? Is this, you know how it's real? Has it changed your life. And are you living that life? The things that you once did, the things you once said, the things you once went, those things have been changed. What would a private investigator dig up on you? Would you pass the test? But see, God is the ultimate investigator, isn't he? He examines the heart. And if we're going to effectively lead others, if we're effectively going to be an authentic, gospel-centered, disciple-making congregation, we need people and a church. We need a godly message. It's the gospel of God. We need to do it in a godly manner where people know that they are loved in spite of their weaknesses and failures. We love them. We shepherd them here. We don't throw people under the bus. We shepherd people. And we do it with a godly motive. Why? Because me, elders, deacons, and you, really, were accountable to God for how you are shepherded. And we do it with that godly motive of sincerity. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Right? Do you? I want to be a part of that kind of church that's, that's growing in godliness, that is a place that people can come in and before too long, 
They say, what's this all about? And they can get connected. And I know there's ways and means that you, you do that, and we can always do a better job in communicating all those things. And, but at the very foundation, the very heart of Grace Church, that if we're going to be a disciple-making church, I believe these are things that we can learn that the Apostle Paul gave instruction out of his own life and how he discipled this young congregation. Let's pray.